Please be seated. As you take your seat, you can open with me to the letter of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans. Last time we were together, we looked at the middle of this particular chapter. Today, we'll look at the end from verse 18 all the way to verse 32. Somewhat of an unpopular subject, the wrath of God. The wrath of God. People often talk about the love of God and the blessings of salvation whenever they share the gospel with someone else. But many times, the other side of that is left out. The wrath of God. One statistician has noted that For every expression of God's love and kindness throughout the Bible, there are three expressions of His wrath and fury. So as a minister of the gospel, we have to be true to God's Word, all of His Word. As the Lord told Jeremiah, don't clip off any of it. Paul certainly didn't. He spends time here I believe answering some questions. That's the way I'd like to frame this this morning, this message with three questions. Number one, what is the nature of God's wrath? We have to understand that if we're going to study it and look at what Paul says. Number two, what does, or what does God, why does God exercise his wrath in verses 18 through 23? And then secondly, or thirdly, I'm sorry, we're going to look at how. God reveals His wrath. So those are our three questions this morning. What is the nature of God's wrath? Number two, why does God exercise His wrath? And number three, how does God reveal His wrath? And before we dig in, let's pray and ask for God's grace and mercy as we study. Heavenly Father, I thank You that You are present with us. And I pray, Lord, that as we consider these sobering verses, that you would work in every one of our hearts, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would open our ears, our eyes, and our hearts to truth. Lord, do what you alone can do. Bring salvation. I pray that you would give us grace now. Prevent the enemy from stealing away the precious seed of the Word of God from our hearts. And we'll give you all the praise and glory for the outcome as we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, what is the nature of God's wrath? Well, the Bible speaks of it, as I mentioned, many places. God's wrath is His divine displeasure with sin. The Old Testament mentions several occasions when God's wrath came upon His people for their sin. For example, in Exodus 15 and Exodus 32 with the golden calf incident. The New Testament predicts a time when the final expression of God's wrath will fall on rebellious humanity. In Romans and Ephesians and Colossians, to name a few places. Excuse me. God's wrath is not like human anger which is always tainted by sin. Human wrath, 
Human anger is normally self-centered, vindictive, and intentionally harmful. God's wrath is always completely righteous. He never loses His temper. Last time in verse 17, we learned Paul wrote that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. The other side of that coin this morning is verse 18. Paul tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. There is an essential relationship between God's righteousness and God's wrath. See, God's provision of His grace in offering us the righteousness of His own Son, Jesus Christ, through His death on the cross, naturally leads to wrath when it is rejected, when truth is suppressed. In other words, the greatness of God's grace and love and giving us His one and only Son demands the balance of His wrath against those who reject that one and only Son. Although the wrath of God is primarily eschatological, that is, in the future, it is at the same time a present reality. The use of the present tense in verse 18 is being revealed, indicates something that is taking place now. There will be the full pouring out of God's anger and fury in the future upon all those who have rejected and denied His Son. But there is wrath being let out now. What is the sign of it? Unbelief. Unbelief. The Gospel of John, the Apostle John made it clear that when the Gospel goes forward, those who receive and obey the gospel, the wrath of God no longer abides upon them. But those who reject the gospel, there is a continuation of the wrath of God upon that life. I've learned over the years of ministry that in dealing with this subject matter, it's important to have a broken heart. Not to relish the fact that there will be those who will perish, who will suffer the fury and the wrath of God for all of eternity in never-ending torment, that should break your heart if you have tasted any of the kindness of the Lord by His grace. Well, that's the nature, somewhat of the nature of God's wrath. Now let's look at the passage in these two movements. Why does God exercise His wrath? Look at verses 18 through 23. The Bible says that God made man upright, but He has sought out many devices. In verse 19, every human being has a sense of the knowledge of God because we are made in His image. That is why verse 19 speaks of an internal or an innate knowledge of God. John Calvin, the great reformer, called this the seed of religion in every person. You see, as creatures, we long for the Creator. Or we find a substitute for Him. But that seed of religion inside of us leads us to gravitate towards something bigger than us. 
and the correct object of that pilgrimage should be the living God. Make no mistake about it. God's thumbprint is on every human heart. Truth cannot be changed, but it can be held down or stifled, suppressed. If you look at verse 20, additionally, Paul makes it clear that the created order bears witness to the reality and the presence of the Almighty. Verse 20 explains that certain individual attributes of God have been clearly perceived since the world began, specifically His eternal power and divine nature. That's why we read Psalm 19 this morning. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. We might say no language, nor are there words that the voice of the Lord is not heard. We call this general revelation. Paul is speaking of general revelation, how the created order reveals without a doubt the presence and the glory of the triune God. You see, believing something like the Big Bang Theory takes more faith than believing the truth. The solar system, the order of the sun, the constellations, the moon and the stars, the intricacies of the human body, the amazing phenomenon of reproduction and birth, the animal kingdom with its various classes and orders and species, all these things scream that there is a God. saying that all of this came about as a result of some big bang. Someone has put it this way. That would be the equivalent of saying Webster's Dictionary is a product of an explosion at the print shop. No. It was all put together by a creator. Bottom line is we're born dead in trespasses and sins, and therefore we're both ungodly and unrighteous. We don't give a God honor, and we don't treat each other with the courtesy and the honor that we owe other human beings. So there's a natural tendency in the human heart to ignore and suppress the truth. And Paul tells us that all of this leads us without excuse before God. You see, seeing the beauty and the complexity of creation carries with it a responsibility of acknowledging the Creator as powerful and as living above the natural order. Disbelief or unbelief requires an act of rebellion against common sense and against the Lord. Listen to the words of Robert Mounts. Things visible call for a power that is visible. The idea that matter has always existed is impossible premise for the logical mind, the view that behind the visible there must exist an invisible being is far more reasonable. So those who do not believe are, as Paul says, without excuse in this verse. Verse 20. Although the created order cannot force a person to believe, it does have the recipient responsible for not believing. 
Now, in verses 21 through 23, Paul outlines the order and the outcome of this suppression of the truth. It's not that human beings don't know there's a God. They know it, but they suppress the truth about Him. They would like to get God out of their lives. That's what we do as a result of sin. Now, first, he shows us that this suppression of the truth and the rejection of the knowledge of God manifests itself in a refusal to honor God for who He is and by not being grateful to Him for all that He has done in creation. This dishonor, this ingratitude leads to futile speculations and a darkened, foolish heart, as outlined in verse 21. We can see this in history. The enlightenment really became the endarklement. As man took his attention away from the true and living God and placed it upon the greatness of man and his achievements. The theory of evolution is a guess or a shot in the dark about how we came into being, how we evolved into what we are. It ignores and dishonors the God who created us. When we reject God's truth, it leads us to create our own truth. And that's what futile speculation is. Truth becomes relative to one's own preferences. Don't we see that nowadays? People make their own truth. What's true for you may not be true for me, as some say. But man's speculations, apart from God's truth, inevitably lead to darkness. Things are getting darker and darker in our world. In verse 22, Paul shows us that the rebellion from God leads to human arrogance. The person who turns away from God professes to be wise, but has in fact become a fool. Why is that? Well, in rejecting the knowledge of God, available in creation, people claim to be wiser than God. And this rejection of truth marks the rebel as a fool. There's two contrasts going on here, light and darkness, wisdom and foolishness. And whenever we profess to be wise, we show that arrogance that comes up in the creature whenever we become independent of God. And it leads to a self-deification. A self-deification lies at the heart of human rebellion. Just as it did when Adam and Eve were first tempted in the garden. Satan gave them the lie that you will be like God. Satan wanted to be over God, and he wanted others to join him. But although people claim to be wise when they reject God, they become fools. Verse 23, Paul demonstrates the level of foolishness he is referring to as he outlines the great exchange, the ungodly and the unrighteous. I believe Paul is looking back through the corridors of time uh, right up to the present moment of the Roman Empire. And he's thinking about all those who are Gentiles. See, Romans 1 basically says Gentiles are sinners who need salvation. Romans 2 says Jews are sinners who need salvation. And then in Romans 3, Paul's going to wrap it up by saying every one of us, all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, need salvation. He says there's the great exchange, the ungodly and unrighteous exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible men and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What is Paul saying? 
He's saying that something of what we started with, namely, the human heart has a seed of religion. And if a man or a woman will not acknowledge God and give glory and thanks to Him, then he or she will turn their attention to an idol. That could be yourself. It could be another person. It could be an animal. And we've seen idolatry throughout history. And the Bible demonstrates it in God's own people. And notice the progression here. It's downward. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they go after something that is corruptible. Man, birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Deuteronomy 4, verses 16-18, God prohibited the Israelites from making images shaped like a man, any animal on earth or any creature that moved along the ground. And Paul used these same categories to describe the flight of sinners away from the knowledge of God. This decline from idols shaped like humans to images of beasts and even creeping things shows a debased mind gravitates to the lowest possible level. The worship of gods in the form of animals was common in the pagan world. In the ancient Near East, people worshipped such animals as bulls and jackals, hawks, serpents. The name of the Canaanite god Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. Paul's denunciation brings to mind Psalm 106, verse 20. They exchanged the glory of God for an image of a bull, which alludes to the Israelites' worship of the golden calf of Sinai. When you turn away from truth, when you suppress who God is and what He has said, it's inevitable you'll have a downward you dishonor God, you will end up dishonoring your own body, yourself. Well, that is the why of God's wrath. Now, let's look at the how. The remaining of the passage, verses 24 through 32. How does God reveal His wrath? Paul presents here three sections, all of which begin with the phrase, God gave them over to. God's wrath in the present and the here and now is not a matter of dealing out visible retribution and punishment. It's God's allowing a person to go their own way, to follow their appetites and the sinful inclinations of the heart. As a modern pagan practitioner has put it, to discover who you really are apart from all the baggage of religion and all the social conventions that have been forced upon you by your parents and teachers. Young people, when you go to college, that's what you'll hear. People with all their infinite wisdom telling you that you are a victim of religious baggage and social conventions. They will promise you freedom while they themselves are enslaved to sin. Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12, God declared, My people would not listen to me, so I gave them over to the stubborn hearts to follow their own desires. Professor Godet, listen to his words here. God ceased to hold the boat as it was dragged by the current of the river. Sin inevitably creates its own penalty. One is punished by the very things by which he or she sins. And often we don't notice it. Go out in the ocean. You go to the beach. You're standing there in the ocean. You're swimming. And 
having a good time. Before you know it, you've drifted down. I always had to get out and walk another mile to get back to where my tent was or my umbrella. <laughs> I don't notice it when I'm swimming. And that's the way it is with God's wrath. You notice it by what's not there. He's not there holding the boat. He's not there holding your hand. He's letting you do what you want. And I believe Paul offers three examples and three expressions of God's wrath against unbelief. Let's look at these three sections one at a time. The first is in verses 24 and 25. This is the essence of human sin. We might say God reveals His wrath by giving people over to an impure heart. Look at 24 and 25. God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Used metaphorically in Scripture, the heart does not represent the emotions or feelings as it generally does in modern language, modern usage, but rather the whole thinking process, including especially the will and man's motivations. It is, in the broadest sense, the heart represents the basic nature of a person, his or her inner being and character. And following the inclinations of the heart has become very fashionable in our day and appropriate to the pagan mindset, but it has never been the course that God intended for humanity. Jeremiah the prophet said in chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And our Lord Jesus said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. The writer of Proverbs says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. You cannot simply follow your heart. If you do, it will lead to your eternal ruin you'll be an object of the wrath of God. So we have to take our hearts, we have to take our person, and take it before the truth of Almighty God. Say, Lord, please address this inclination of mine in this direction. I don't want that inclination. I want you to do something supernatural inside of me. I want you to do heart surgery so that you remove the poison. You remove that which is polluting my mind. God reveals His wrath by giving people over to an impure heart. That's the essence of what is taking place. Now He gives an expression of what takes place in verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function with, for that which is unnatural. And the men also abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. These verses contain the clearest teaching in the New Testament on homosexuality. In this section, Paul described the practices as shameful, unnatural, indecent, and as a perversion. And by contrast, the Greco-Roman society of Paul's days tolerated homosexuality with considerable ease. William Barclay notes that, quote, 14 out of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals. If you study their life, you study their misery, you study their venereal disease, you end up 
with men on the scrap heap of life. In Jewish culture, however, it was regarded as an abomination. Professor Barrett comments that no feature of pagan society filled the Jew with greater loathing than the toleration, or rather the admiration, of homosexual practices. The Old Testament specifically prohibits homosexuality. Leviticus 18.22, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. And Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10, Homosexual offenders will not inherit the kingdom of God. As I've said many times, you have these inclinations. Go back to the heart. Ask the Lord God to deliver you from them. Because you're living in a day when everyone around you is going to affirm those inclinations. And the voices that hold the ropes to the boat will become less and less. You know, against this background, it's difficult to understand why some contemporary teachers, the preachers, who claim to be biblical, make an allowance for the practice clearly and uniformly condemned in both the Old and New Testament. Listen to the words of Elizabeth Actemeyer, a scholar in her own right. She writes that the kind of life Paul described in verses 26 and 27, quote, cannot be understood as an alternate lifestyle somehow acceptable to God, but rather as a sign of one of the forms God's wrath takes when he allows us free reign to continue in our abuse of creation and our abuse of one another as his creatures. This portion of the passage begs the question, who or what is the object of my passions in life? Is it to follow my own heart, my own passions, along with the ungodly? Or is it to follow the truth about God himself and about me? You were made in his image. You were known before the foundation of the world. Your name has always been on the mind of Almighty God. And he sent his son to die for you. God reveals his wrath by turning people over to degrading passions. If you're there, don't stay there. Cry out. A third way, and this is the extent, we might say, of the wrath of God being poured out. God reveals his wrath by giving people over to a depraved mind. Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Now, to help us from falling into the indolence of targeting homosexuality as the chief cardinal or mortal sin, Paul outlines a host of sins we all commit at one time or another in our lives. Some, to be sure, follow the ungodly passions of their hearts, but others who refuse to submit their minds to the Lord are given over to the, what the Apostle Paul calls a depraved mind. And I believe Paul ends with this section to deliver us from thinking the fiction that one sin trumps another before the holy face of God. I don't do that sin. Therefore, I'm better off. You may be better off in life, but you're not better off before a holy God. This laundry list of sins includes everything from gossip to murder. 
And I wager that every one of us has been guilty of one or more of these sins at some point in our lives. Let me go further than that. Truthfully, we're all guilty of all these sins. Given Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, if you think something in your heart, you may not have physically murdered somebody, but if there's hatred in your heart, you're committing murder, Jesus said. We're all guilty. James says to break one commandment is to break all of God's commandments. You see, we're all in the same mess. And this is what Paul is doing. This passage is an indictment against the entire Gentile world and everyone in it. We all stand guilty and fall short of the glory of God because of our sin. But thankfully, the good news is God so loves you that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in order to take your wrath, wrath that was owed to you and me by God. He took that wrath on Himself in His own body. And He clothes us with the righteous garments that only He can provide. The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Your wrath, my wrath, has been removed. We are clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ, and therefore we can live and die with peace. We have a clear conscience, not because we're righteous, but because Jesus is righteous. And He lives inside of us. Let me challenge you with that this morning. If there's one or two or more here today, you have never truly embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let me urge you, let me beg you, plead with you to ask Him into your life. To yield your life to Him, to submit to Him because He's alive, He's real, and He loves you so very much. Don't reject that love. You want to discover who you truly are? Lose your life in Him and let His life come up in you. For the rest of us, let our hearts break. This wrath, this fury, this eternal fire is coming rapidly, I believe. And so we ought to pray and we ought to have broken hearts for those who have yet to believe the truth and come into the light of God's salvation in Christ. Let's pray for them. Let's love them. Share our lives with them that they might be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your attributes. I pray this morning, Lord, that through the foolishness of the message preached, that you would glorify yourself by a marvelous and glorious conversion of some who are here today. Open our hearts, open our eyes. Help us to cling to Jesus. Help us to receive and rest upon Him. Lord, for the rest of us who've already done that, may we find that we have a broken heart for others who haven't. May we honor You daily with our lives. May we give You thanks. May we be consciously aware of Your presence with us all the time. 
Lord, your love is better than life itself. Please manifest your love this morning on those who are present here. And I ask all these things confidently, confidently in eager anticipation. In Jesus' name.